This is episode 67 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're continuing with the 2011 Annual Enrichment Conference, Choose to Love or Die. This is session four, Wednesday morning, with Bruce McNichol and Bill Thrall. I'm just going to reorient us to what we were doing with learning protective love as a church. So if um, we can pull that up just now. What we have are, uh, on that sheet, cultures of grace. And then down the left-hand side, that sheet from yesterday, we have these three moving parts. The biblical principles, the relational process that leads to some progress in our journey. We talked a little bit about those true faith principles yesterday. We probably referred to five or six of them so far. And this morning, what we're continuing is that middle piece, which is the awakening, the exchange, and the breakthrough. And that little series right in there is what we call protective love. We're in the awakening part right now, and Bill is going to be talking about the uh, awakening to an experience of something that we never before perhaps knew about ourselves. Um, And when we awaken to that, there will be a certain amount of pain. He's going to talk about that this morning. So I just wanted to reorient you to that chart dealing with the awakening. And then later this morning, we'll get into the exchange, this afternoon in the exchange, and then the breakthrough. All right? Once we learn that individually, and then as a team, we can begin doing that as a church. And then we can even stand with other churches in the process. So Bill, come on up. Good morning. Wow, if that was John Lynch, he'd go, oh, you can do better than that. Good morning. There you go. Thank you very much. I asked the musicians to sing that song for us, or with us again this morning, because of that phrase in the song where we uh, sang repeatedly, I need you. I need you. I need you. And of course, in the song, the direct attention was to the Lord. But I want to remind you of some of the things we said yesterday. We are to love each other as he loved us. So one of the great things we want to learn together is, how do I learn to need you? Like like you. And, and how do I do that? Well, again, to remind us about yesterday, um, I want to tell you that I need to learn to trust God and others with me. Without humility, the words I need you will never be in my heart or in my mouth. And, and as, we, as we think about that, this morning I particularly want to talk with us about what we are discovering is a tremendous um, negative in our person that keeps us from declaring our need, and that's called our shame. Um, Some of the things we're learning help us to say this. um, The way I treat you is in fact the commentary of my relationship with God. 
The way I treat you is in fact the commentary of my relationship with God. If a man says he loves God and hates his brother, he is a, a liar. So I want us to think about the, the potential significance of those words as we think about this uh, principle uh, of shame that affects us. I also want to share this with you that um, Bruce and I were part of a group called TACT, uh, Theological and Cultural Thinkers, and uh, it was a privilege. It was a group of, of uh, very well-known theologians and Christian leaders. And uh, we had a chance to minister with them three days a week, I mean, three days, twice a year, for six years. And it was a great experience. And, and in that uh, time, uh, Bruce and I came up with this statement. I want you to think about it this morning as we shared it with that group. How I view me, how I view me, may be the greatest commentary of my theology. How I view me. And, and of course, when you hear that for the first time, many of the reactions are, no, actually, how I view God. But, but I want to share it with something with you right now. How I view me as a Christian is a direct reflection of how I view God. How I view me. Our, our little statement of, of several, the beginning of it says this, only grace through love can overcome my shame. Only grace through love can overcome my shame. You may not think the way we think on some of these principles, but I want to share this with you. If I do not know how to trust who God says I am, I will view myself through the lens of my shame. If I do not know how to trust who God says I am, I will view my life through the lens of my shame. So what I need is I need to believe something that God has done again. And that is that he has made provision at a place called Calvary for my shame. Or my shame will be the great motivator of my heart. And it will be that through which I see who I am. Now we know the theology. Remember this statement from yesterday? If our theology doesn't touch our reality, it's because we don't understand grace. Grace brings our theology into our reality, and this is our reality. 
because of sin. I've experienced guilt. But because of sin, I experience shame. This is what shame is. Shame is that deep down inside of me reality that there's something wrong with me. And there is. I'm a sinner who needs to be saved by God's grace. Now listen carefully. And once saved by God's grace, because I am a new creature, I no longer am condemned. I am no longer condemned. My identity in Christ, because of his work at Calvary, has in fact made solution to or provision for the reality of my shame. Yesterday afternoon we had a question and answer session and several of you were there and one of the questions that we were asked yesterday was how does a church, uh, a culture of a church become shame-based and how do you deal with that? If shame teaches me that I am not enough, and I do not believe truly who Christ says I am, then every message that reminds me I am not enough as a Christian keeps me bound in my shame. That's called sin management theology. Every ought message. You ought to do this better. You ought to do that better. You ought to do enough of these and not less of those. Every one of those is saying to you very clearly, you are still not enough. You know what that does? That triggers your shame. Now what if in fact, because of the incredible miracles of Calvary, you no longer are not enough? What if because the miracles of Calvary, you, sitting there today, this guy standing here today, this guy knows shame. Come on, I know shame. I've experienced it. But what if this were true? What if before God, this guy talking and everybody in here could believe this truth, you are no longer condemned? The love of Jesus Christ at Calvary took upon him your shame. And in the darkness of those three hours, God did not want mankind to see what our shame had done to our Savior. 
Isaiah tells us his body was distorted with the weight of it. And what if I could suggest to you that in these environments of grace, that your messages were to nurture that creation that is new, rather than giving condemnation messages of not being enough. Our environments would change. What if this next statement were actually true? You think about it, what if it was actually true? What if you actually taught in our churches people to give and receive love as a way of sinning less? Do you know that actually would work? Do you know that Jesus is so wise that when he said that our love would in fact be the witness that we are his, is that our love designed by him is a means for us to trust each other with all that is true about us. Now this is a a no-duh, but let me say it. The reason the next statement says this, I want to be known, but I fear I will be known. The reason we hide from each other The reason we hide from each other is because of our shame. You know, I'm a Christian. There's a miracle of God in me, and I'm schizophrenic. Because because I'm a new creature in Christ, I am desperately wanting to be known. And I'm scared to death I will be. Why? Because our environments are not teaching that this part of me that is afraid needs to come out of hiding. And that nothing, nothing that is true about me should be hidden from those who love me. We do marriage retreats for executive couples. I teach a lesson very similar to this to these couples. And I say to them as couples, and I'll say to you as adults, many of you church leaders, whatever you are hiding will eventually define you in every relationship you have. Come out of hiding. That is not who you are. And then we always do that the first evening, and then the next morning, several of the men, coincidentally, the men, will raise their hands with a question. Here's the question. Do I, do I have to tell my wife everything all at one time? <laughs> and, and I'll say to them, Uh, that's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. Here's the right question. Why after being a Christian 5, 10, 15, 20, and even 30 years, do I still have so much hidden stuff in my life? 
I'll tell you why. Because you don't have a theology that is freeing you from your shame. That's why. Because you don't have relationships where you can be trusted. Where you don't have relationships where people can trust you. So you live in hiddenness. Listen, listen, an environment of grace dynamic. If your church is not safe, listen to this reality. If the penalty for my disclosure is the same as the penalty for my getting caught, I will hide from you till you catch me. Did you hear that? We need to have safe places where it's okay for us. And you're going to say, some of you are sitting there going, ugh, Bill, do you have any idea how messy that is? Yeah, kind of. That's kind of the ministry we have. Yeah, we have a sense of how messy it is, but do you have any idea how freeing it is? See, it, it... Just for instance, in the scripture it says, it was for freedom that I set you free. Now don't read those verses in in Galatians as meaning he freed you from sin. No, what he's really saying in Galatians is, I freed you for freedom. It's not a message of freeing from, it's a message of being freeing to. When I live without condemnation, I live freely. Now, don't raise your hands, but have you noticed how hard it is to every day live under the burden of what is hidden? It just takes up all your energy. You're just zapped. As I think with you this morning, I'd like you to be uh, thinking about this, especially as Christian leaders. If I'm not able to trust who Christ says I am, my shame will drive my behavior. And it'll take me in two directions. In this direction, my shame will cause me to do everything I can to please God. Because it makes me feel like I'm doing something really important. And as if I'm doing something really important, what I'm really doing is I'm just putting a salve, so to speak, on my shame for the moment. But you know what the scripture says? God doesn't want us to please him. God wants us to trust him. Shame doesn't want to trust. You know what the second thing shame does? It not only causes me to want to please God so he can show him, like you may want to look at Luke chapter 18 and verse number 9 about the Pharisee who wanted to please God. But shame does something else. 
It causes me to want to do something about my sin. It causes me to want to do something about, it causes me to want to do something about my sin because it makes me feel better about myself when I do. All sin management theology is rooted in shame. It is not biblical and it doesn't work. We have a savior who died for every sin because no one in this room can manage any sin. And then I know, because we get these questions, how do I then live? If, if I'm not pleasing God and working on my sin, what, what else is there to do? <laughs> that's, that's the Christian life. No, it's not. That's the distortion of the Christian life. See, what I get to do is I get to trust my God so he can love me. And because I've learned to receive love, I'm able to give love. You may not think the way our team thinks, but I'll close with this thought. The great hindrance to your trust may be your shame. But Jesus has made through his love the solution to your shame. Could you believe, would you allow your heart to just say this, Jesus, thank you for taking my shame at Calvary so I can live without condemnation and be free. Yay. He's a personal friend of mine. I get to hang out with him uh, more than you do. Thank you. Hey, it is time for the best exercise that I know of. I love this exercise so much, and it is all about protective love. It is another step in how do I put my arm around you? Instead of trying to fix you, blame you, discard you, condemn you, judge you, win over you, leverage. Instead, how do I get access to your heart so that I can be used as a shepherd to protect and to receive permission so that I can love you and influence through my love? I want to gain trust so that you will give me permission to influence your heart. I want that with my kids so much. That's been one of the highest things in my life. I want to earn their trust so that I can access their heart, so that I can be trusted and get to influence them. Without that, without that, I can give them information, but I never get to give them insight, discernment, wisdom. And so 
we're trying to always find ways of how do we access each other? How do we gain permission into each other's hearts? How do we win each other's hearts so that their new nature can come out and play? So this is a, a wonderful exercise called Ask Me Anything. And do it if you're in a team of four or five. Pick one of you who's never had this experience before and um, prepare questions for them. Now here's how it'll go. And if it's a husband and a wife, just pick one of the two of you. If you're alone, um, this would be really great to do. Write down some questions for a person you're thinking of back home. And then just commit to say, when you get back home, would you spend time with me to let me ask you these questions? So here's how it works. Take a few minutes, write down five questions you'd like your teammate, spouse to answer. Please focus on open-ended, clarifying, and affirming types of questions. Avoid questions that form a simple yes or no answer. You don't want to ask, uh, do you still like the color green? <laughs> Have, do, do you believe we're doing all we can do to cut down on the cost of our electric bill? Th those questions don't go deep into the soul. Here's, here's an example of one. With Stacy recently, my own wife, all three of our kids have grown up. We tried to stop it, but it just happened. <laughs> and now Carly's going to go away probably to Biola or Azusa in the fall. And my wife has not done well with it. All she knew was to be a mom. Nobody gave her a memo that said they would leave your home someday. And now that they have, she is devastated. And I, it just, I just love them. I get to go to California and visit them, and I just am happy at whatever stage they've been in. Dig me. But my wife hasn't been, and I just have sent her the message many times, hey, why don't you get over it? <laughs> you can imagine the, the delight in her response to me. So I found myself one time asking the question, I think I've been wanting you to just get over it. Will you tell me what it feels like, my wife, of what you're going through and how I can stand with you? Because I haven't known. And then I'll ask another question. All these years, you have stood with me and protected me, and now we're going into a different season of life. Tell me your dreams. Tell me the dreams that God's put on your heart that I could stand with. And my wife says, Who are you? And where's my husband? I want him back. I won't pay much ransom, but I would like to at least, at least know where he is. Now, here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of the exercise. You only have to answer two. So you can, if you want and you're not ready, you can go with the color or the electricity one. If there's four people on your team, you're going to get four sets of five questions. And you answer two of them. And now, now here's another beautiful one, is after you're done with this exercise, you get to take those two questions that were answered and go deeper and say, based on your answers to those two questions, I want to ask five more, and you can answer two of those. This is a beautiful, beautiful permission for someone to start saying, this is who I am, and don't ask questions that are setting them up to tell a sin or a weakness in their life. This is not a time to say, what would you like to share that we all know that is true about you and your failure? 
don't manipulate or you won't be trusted. This is saying, I want to know your person. I want to have access to your person. So, that's what you're going to do right now. You're going to write five questions. That person's going to say, no way am I answering that one. And they will take two of them and answer them. It's a beautiful, and we'll talk about, we'll, we'll review afterwards and say, how will we do this in a larger setting in our community, in our church? But for right now, give that great gift. And, and then what we say here is, take notes of their answers, and then after questions are answered, tell your friend what you learned, and pray together. This is a beautiful, beautiful time to honor and love each other. This is an expression of protective love. Have fun. The first few minutes, I should hear nothing but just the sounds of pens and pencils. All right, I'm going to interrupt you for just a moment. Take, uh, if you're not finished already, take one more minute to kind of wrap up what you're talking about. Take one more minute, and we have this question for you. How now are we going to embed this process in our church culture? This is a piece of that protective love process. How would you help people learn how to do what you're doing right now? How would you do that in your church community? That's the question we want you to work on now. All right? So take a few minutes to do that. Uh, how do we take this process and embed it into our church culture? Good morning again. Let me, um, let me ask you, uh, what were you just talking about? What, what was the essence of imagining a tool, not necessarily this piece of paper, but imagining a tool or a process where you could actually get people to talk about who they really are? How would you do that in your church? Anybody, just, just how would you do that? Imagine. Right here. We just start with the Go ahead. elders. Here. Okay, we just uh, would start with a couple of elders and just uh, try this out. Yeah. And then if it works, give them each a sheet of paper and say, take it home and try it on your wife. Amen. Amen. So. Thanks. Good. Something as simple as starting. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> how about that? Starting. Somebody else. Well, just your... Your conversation's in the back over here. I figured I would just start it off with my youth group. There, I didn't even have to talk loud. That was weird. But anyway, um, started off with them. I figured I'd set up my leaders really well because I would give it to the kids and say they could ask any leader they wanted five yeah. questions, and they would answer two. Good. And then after they had them all written out, I'd tell my leaders about it, because it's always fun to spring stuff on them like that, you know. Good. But uh, that's how I would start it, anyway. Good. And then we try and springboard from there. Good, good idea. Somebody else, how, how, how would you use a tool like this, or at least the concept in the context of your church? Somebody else. Way, way in the back over here. We are um, a church plant. We're only a year and a half old, so we're small on the smaller side, you know, 120 people. So we, we can do little things that we can 
Anyway, so my idea was we're going to have a box. We're going to actually have an affirmation box where people can, can just weekly go and, and write down the things they appreciate about one another and just have that constantly in front of them. But I'm thinking we should have a uh, ask me anything box that they can for leadership. And then we get to choose this leadership the, you know, out of the five questions. But we'll just up um, in front of them every once in a while say, this was a really great question or this is a really tough question, but we would love to... Um, to talk idea. about this with you guys and to go through this and it's going to give us the, um, the pulse and the heartbeat of really what people are feeling. So that, that was an idea. Great idea. Thank you. I think there was another hand way in the back. Maybe not. Okay. <clears throat> well, I was just thinking it would be a great tool if one were brave enough when you're having uh, new people come and you gather them together and they get to meet the pastor, to sit there and say, okay, you have your chance. Ask me five questions. I get to choose two of them. Amen. But that way I'm opening up that up. That I'm beginning to already establish a climate of, uh, of acceptance and love and care. And so Amen. I think that would be a great way to use that. Thank uh, you. To build that. Great, great idea. And again, listen to what they're saying. It's about the climate. See, it's about the culture. Okay, one, one more, just one more hand somewhere, right here. Well, one of the things we were talking about as far as with Sunday school classes or small groups, um, when we focus in on the Bible study aspect, it can be pretty impersonal. We're talking about the study itself and in uh, hypotheticals, um, but shifting questions to be more focused on the individuals. You know, if we're studying a, a passage about anger or marriage, you know, let's, let's not talk about it in hypotheticals. What makes you angry in life? How is your marriage? What's going on with you? What successes do you find? And, um, and, and not being so afraid to ask direct questions about um, what's going on with you in your life and how is this study? Not applying hypotheticals, but in the reality of where you're at right now. Great, great, great responses. Thank you. Uh, just one more thing before John comes up to speak. Um, Right in the back there, somebody asked me a question about my last talk, and I want to answer their question for just a couple more minutes. Um, back to this issue of shame for just a couple more minutes. Because I want to remind us where it all started and, and how we need to be able to biblically uh, clarify one more time the power of this motivator in us. I want to read to you from uh, Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to interrupt the story of Adam and Eve and the tree. It says in verse 7, Then the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and, hid, and made themselves loincloths. And so for the first time in history, the human being, in choosing to sin, became aware of their shame. And so they, they, they sewed together fig cloths, fig leaves, to cover their nakedness. And it's very, very interesting that the first sin of man, man committed the first act of sin management. I'm going to make fig leaves to cover what is now wrong with me. And we've been perfecting sin management ever since. And then it says this, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. 
Shame convinces us there's something wrong with us and so we hide. Now here's a really interesting insight. They hid themselves fully covered with fig leaves. You see, sin management doesn't work. What it does is creates masks in which we try to convince each other we're okay. It creates behaviors. But when push, push comes to shove, to shove, what happens is it causes me to hide from you and God. And then it says this, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now listen, listen to the words of shame. Shame causes me to be afraid. And, 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 and listen to the language of the confession. Because I was naked and I hid myself. Well, he isn't naked. He's got fig leaves all over his body. See, what he's doing is he's saying, at the core of my person, even though I'm covered, I am aware of my shame. And then God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to me she, what's that called? Blame. Blame. And said to the woman, and the woman said, the serpent. That's called blame. So just as a good insight that we want to share with you is this. The attitude of blame in you is not about the person you blame. It's about the unresolved shame in you. We criticize out of our unresolved. And we get each other ticked off because of it. And then you know the story in verse 21, and it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So God did what needed to be done. A redemptive act, an, an innocent animal, maybe a lamb, had to have its blood spilt so that the sin of Adam and Eve, and listen carefully, and the condition of their shame could be resolved so they no longer needed to hide from God. Did you hear that? So as we ask, answer that question, as we think about it together, our language is as strong as we know how to make it. If as a Christian, I do not know how to trust who God says I am, I will see my life through the lens of my shame.
and you will pay for it. Happy thought, right? Okay, John. Gosh, I hope I do a good job with this. I'm asking God to give me um, clarity and focus because I'm kind of going at this different than I usually do. Um, hey, if you haven't bought this book, buy it. You really cannot live the Christian life effectively without it. <laughs> yes, Bible, Holy Spirit, but you're not going to make it without this. Let's get that clear right now. It's called True Face. Um, I don't know if you're aware that the uh, colleges and different universities, the Christian schools, are not philanthropic projects. I don't want to go to prison. Please, buy the book. I don't care if you like it. Just buy it. Um, chapter 5 and chapter 6 address the subjects that we're going to talk about now. Repentance and forgiveness. And remember, this is all about Protective love. How do I get to stand with the people? I'm a shepherd. How do I get to stand with them? With my leadership? With my church? With my friendships? In my marriage? With my children? See, God made two incredible gifts. He, cre he gave us these gifts as an antidote to the two things that plague us most, hurt and guilt. For guilt, he gave us repentance. And for hurt, he gave us forgiveness. And when I choose these, it stops the inevitable effects that would happen after. If I do not choose these, and choose anything else, like trying to get over it, or just moving on, or uh, promises that I'm going to make, I will eventually start to move into the inevitable effects of shame, blame, revenge, gossip, rage, anger, passive aggressiveness, manipulation, leverage. These two gifts are so sacred. But they're so misunderstood, aren't they? I want to I start with repentance and then talk about forgiveness. And then I kind of want to personalize myself and how these two guys helped me walk through a season when I couldn't figure out either. So, repentance. Here I am thinking that repentance is, you've heard it, you've heard every talk on repentance, do a 180, I will repent now. Uh, you were doing that? Don't do that anymore, turn around now and do this. How's that working for you? <laughs> Seriously, on the things that you really struggle with, I'm going to make a promise this time, Lord. I'm telling you, this time I mean business. I know I said I did on those other 336 times, but this time, at this conference, at this moment of time, this time I mean it. 
And the trouble is, the best chance you had at meaning it was the first time. Three, by, by the time we're 336, you're just yapping to hear yourself talk. Your promise and $3.52 will get you a grande latte at Starbucks. Repentance isn't about doing something about our sin. Repentance is admitting that we cannot do anything about our sin. Incredible statement. Turn there if you have your Bibles. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. Listen for protective love. Listen to how he's talking about the shepherd. How do you win someone's heart to create an environment where they get the opportunity of seeing repentance as a gift? You say, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, repentance is not a gift, but scripture says it is. So, so listen, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, David talked about this last night, but, but he must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. So I'm creating this environment with people I love so that I can give them a safe arena to where they can find themselves responding to God's wooing. Patient when wronged, with, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may Grant them, give them as a gift, repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Isn't that crazy? Repentance is a gift. And so all I want to do is I want to create an environment where the people I love don't appease me or, or uh, somehow uh, uh, acquiesce to something else, and I can talk them into repentance that they don't believe yet. But instead, I create a safe enough environment where they can say, and this is true of your teams, God, here I am again. Doggone it. Oh, man. I thought I could do it. I thought I could power up and work my way through this thing and solve this sin. And I can't. Help. Uh, help. I, 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 I can't do this and you can. You're strong and mighty and able. I can't solve my sin. And God says, oh, John. Oh, John, I've been waiting for this. See, the goal of our Christian life is not to fix anything, but to learn to be dependent upon him. That's what I want to teach my kids all day long. Better that you would learn dependence on Christ than that you would get all your behaviors fixed. See, we keep thinking that we're supposed to do something, and it is the worst of man-made religion. I must make a promise. We undervalue sin and we overvalue our flesh when we do so. Instead, as Bill said, it is not about me trying to assuage my shame to prove to God that I mean business, but it is an entirely 
new way of seeing that's as old as scripture and before that. It's learning to trust the power of Christ in me. It's everything. It's everything. Do you know what I have to trust? Every time to be cleansed and to be freed from an act of sin. It's what Bill just talked about. There has to be trust upon and a redemptive act of God. Redemption means to liberate by payment, to release from debt or blame. Sin is only and ever resolved, not by my promise or my willpower or my chutzpah somebody telling me, come on now, it says it, go do it. But it's only by dependent upon the cross of Jesus Christ and saying, Father, once again, here I am again, trying to bluff that I have power and strength in my flesh. I'm going to depend upon what you did at the cross for me and that it is powerful enough to cleanse me from this sin and that you are strong enough to protect me from this sin. That's repentance. And when a church does that, when it finds itself doing that, it will only be because they have trusted that on their worst day, Christ is in them, and that there's nothing that they can do on their own about their sin, but they will have to trust their God. And it makes this beautiful, remember, God protects the humble and stands against the proud. And the humble are those who trust God and, and, and others with them. And the proud are those who say, I can do it! And they sound so pietistic, and it's weak and miserably weasley against sin. It's man-made religion, and it's stupid at best. It is a beautiful thing when we find ourselves saying in repentance... I can't promise. Rather, I'm going to admit to you that I can't do anything. Now, Father, protect us. You be great. You be wonderful. You be strong. You be mighty. You be able. It's when we as a, a church community, we as elders, we just went through this, by the way, our elders about three, four years ago, where we had to say, we're hurting people. And the environment was safe enough. In fact, Bill and Bruce came and stood with us. And the environment was safe enough and strong enough and real enough that we could open our hands and start telling on each other, start telling on myself. A guy said to me during that time, John, ever since you took over in that role for Bill, I didn't think you were the right man. And so I've stood against you on everything you've ever done. I've opposed you on every issue. I love you so much, I'm so sorry. And we held each other that night, and we are each other's fans now. And we protect this body together. Once that happens, hands open, and people want to pour out what is true and get it out. That's real repentance. It's not manning up. It's letting... God be mighty. Now, forgiveness. 
we have a hard time with forgiveness too, don't we? Because it feels like, why would I, I'm not going to forgive her, there's no way, because she has not owned what she's done. And until she owes what, it's not right, it's not fair. And so we harbor, and we hold on to it. And, and, and we try to say the words of forgiveness, but our heart's not in it, we don't believe it. In true faith, we talk about a horizontal forgiveness and a vertical forgiveness. And we say that the vertical forgiveness has to happen before I even try to initiate a horizontal forgiveness. The vertical forgiveness is for my benefit. It is letting go of the other for my benefit. Now, the person has not apologized. They've not repented in any way. But I'm going to God because here's that statement. God protects the humble and he stands against the proud. And every time that I don't give it to God and I try to somehow manage it myself, I become judge and jury to that person. Isn't it interesting what happened? You already got hurt once. Now you're hurt again because you become the issue. Do you know what I'm saying? Anybody? Do you know what happens? I, when she hurt me, oh, once I start to hold on to it, I can remember the day and what, what we were wearing and the color and, and, and the smell of the room and what time it was. And this person has forgotten all about it. They've gone on with their life, but I'm frozen. I've got these hooks in me now, and I'm trapped. It's all I can think about. I, can, I, I remember when she said, I can't even believe that. And, and this person, and God, why, it sounds like you're on their side. Why did you do something? Vindicate me. Okay, well, I'm taking things into my own hands here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start selectively picking some people that I can tell some different things about this person that nobody else seems to be telling. That's what I'm going to do, just so they can pray more effectively. <laughs> and now I'm sick. And now I'm crippled. And what God says is, kid, give me a chance, will you? I have to stand against the proud, and you are the proud right now. I can't protect you. And so what vertical forgiveness is, is saying, God, I'm done. Forget for a second, I'm not going to even talk about us being restored. I'm done playing judge and jury. I want to be the humble one. I want you to be mighty. I want you to protect me. So, here's what I have to do. First, I have to admit something happened. I say, Father... I'm tired of acting like I'm okay and I should be above this. No, nothing really happened. Everything's fine. We just had a misunderstanding. No, I'm hurt. I got really hurt. I have to face that. And then I have to tell God what happened to me. Okay. She did this and this and this. And then I have to not just tell what happened, but what are the implications? You know what? It cost me my job and my reputation, my friends right now. Some of them actually believe the gossip that she told about me, and I list it. 
and I get it all out. It hurt. Gosh, it hurt. It hurt me so. It still hurts, God. And, and my kids don't know what to do. And I list it all out. And I give it to him. And then I forgive them for my benefit. For my benefit. I say, Father, you are really good at causing that person to be dealt with. You know what they need. You love them best. You can know exactly what to do, and you've been waiting. I'm getting out of the way. I'm going to try to take this back 20 times today, but each time I'm going to come to you and say, Father, I forgive them for my benefit. Now the hooks come out. Suddenly I'm free again. I can stand up straight. It's not mine anymore. I have given, I have relinquished my control to be in charge of this anymore. And I've said, God, you say you want this. You say this is yours. You say give it to me. And I go, I trust you, God. You're sovereign. You're great. You're wonderful. You're powerful. You're beautiful. You are all, I'm done with it. I'm getting out of the arena. It's killing me. It's destroying my life. And God says, thank you, kid. Now watch me protect you. And now I'm unhooked. Do, do you know what, how I will know that I'm unhooked? I'll start to look at that person who hurt me with love because I'm free again. Until I do that, I, I go to them and I want to talk to them, but I want them to say the right words because they owe me that, and so I'll set it up and I'll play a manipulative game of getting them say, because I need it so bad. I need, them to I need to hear them say, I messed up, you were right. Oh, finally, I win. But once I've given it up, all my needs have been met here. God says, John, I got you, it's okay. I got you, it's over now. You're safe in who I say you are, it's beautiful. I got you, kid. I'm working on your behalf. I know where you are. I know exactly what happened. There's nothing that caught me off guard. And now, I come to her for her benefit. And I pursue reconciliation. Not just conflict resolution, but reconciliation with her. But what it's going to take is her repentance. And so how do I create a setting safe enough and woo her heart so she can say the words, I think I really hurt you, and I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? What, do I need those? No. But she needs them for her restoration so that she can be free from her guilt. Oh, this is deep magic, my friends. It's deep magic. It's so stinking beautiful. Every single week I walk somebody through this. All of us do. Our churches are filled with cripples who have not known how to forgive because they thought, by the way, forgiving them doesn't mean that you trust them. You're not asked to trust them. 
They will have to earn trust. You can never be talked into trust. Trust is something that you'll know when it's been trusted. But so many of us are so frightened that if I forgive them, they're going to get off the hook. They're going to get let off the hook. No. This does not happen until repentance happens. But, oh, do I have to start here first? If I don't do this, this can never happen. So, I got hurt really, 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 really badly. This is about six years ago. And for a long time. Um, did I mention I helped write this book? But I forgot it. And I didn't understand it. I was still mouthing words. Words that Bill and Bruce helped write. And I said, yeah, that, that all sounds good until it happened to me. And then I was limping and I was holding on to it, and I felt like, God, you don't understand. Why don't you do something? Why don't you? Okay, if you're not going to, then I am. And I did tell people so that they could pray effectively. And I gossiped. And meanwhile, these two men kept loving me and kept staying close to me, and they would write me notes. I still have one in my Bible from when Bruce wrote to me. And they kept saying, John, this is who you are, kid. And they stayed in the arena, and they didn't push me away, and they didn't run away from me. They just kept trying to create an environment where I, where I could be freed. One night, Bill's over at my house. I've called him over to my house because um, I want to one-time rehearse again for the 57th time the indictments against that person and all they've done and how he ought to do something. And Bill said these words to me that changed my life. He said, I have to go home now. I cannot take watching my, one of my dearest friends in the world in bitterness. It breaks my heart. I can't watch it right now. And he got up and he left my home. And I thought, how dare you? Don't you understand? I'm the victim here. But he was saying to me, John, you become the perpetrator in your bitterness and your lack of trust of God. And I sobbed 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 that night. And I said, I can't do this, God. Help me, I'm so sorry. I got here again, and I've, I've been the proud one. I've tried to fix myself. I've tried to defend myself. I have not trusted you with me. And I remembered what was in the book that, we, that I actually helped write. And I started going through those steps, and I started writing down, he did this, he did this, it hurt so bad, and it caused this, and it caused this. And I got it all out. 
And I said, God, please be who you say you are. Please be big and strong and beautiful and wonderful and able to defend. Please, this is my life. This is my whole world. I'm so scared. But I'm getting so sick. I can't be judge and jury anymore. Here, it's yours. And I gave it to him. And I'd like to say to you that um, it was complete healing and I never thought about it again. <laughs> can I tell you what? It's been 80% healing. Can I, can I be that honest? Can I tell you that there's still times when something comes up and, and I, <laughs> uh, I make that actual sound, <laughs> but John Lynch is free. John Lynch is no longer crippled. John Lynch can love his children. John Lynch can love his friends. This biblical understanding, you have to give to your community about repentance and about forgiveness. It will create an environment of grace for people to walk into and go, this is real. This place is real. Now it's going to start with you. It's going to start with your leadership. If you can't do it there, your body, there's no way, because they're watching you. Well, I think that's all I have to say. I have no snappy closing, so I'm going to do this. Thank you. We're just going to take, and, and we know your time, we're just going to take just a couple minutes. I want you to think about this question. Not, not just this last couple of minutes, but since we have been here. What have you heard? What, what have you heard? Not, not necessarily what did John just say or Bill say or Bruce say, but what in the world have you heard so far? Just raise your hand. What have you heard? Please, go ahead. I'll, I'll repeat it. We must view ourselves as God. must view ourselves as God sees us. Somebody else, just raise your hand. Yes. The impossible just might be possible. The impossible just might be possible. Calvary might actually work. Whoa, what about that one? Somebody back here. Yes, sir. Calvary does work, but sin management doesn't work. Amen. Thank you, brother. Somebody else, what have you heard? Right behind you. I guess I just have a question because that viewing myself as God views me is a challenge for me. I, I just wonder, why is it so difficult for me, and I'm probably not alone in this, for me to be able to see myself as God sees me? Yeah. Why, yeah. why is that... I, I see the scripture verses and I give intellectual assent, but it's like that distance from head to heart is the longest distance in the world for me. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay, um, all of us will give a little bit to that, and, and then we know you need to go. Um, let me encourage you with something. It's going to take a total worldview change. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we actually learned to trust in our hearts so it could change our thinking, rather than thinking to change our hearts? Think about that. We live in relationship with God by trust. That is not an action of the head. That is an action of the heart. So, so kind of a, a long answer from mine to you, brother, but it's this. Quietly before God, like you did for your salvation, trust him for who he says you are. Just as, you know, you, you knew what you needed to do to become a Christian. Not today, because we don't have the time, but one of the things we teach is that we as Christians, we know how to be saved by grace. Most of us don't know how to be sanctified by grace. Most of us do not know how to take the belief that created us as new into living in the newness for which we were created. It's the same. As you have received Christ Jesus your Lord, so walk in him. It's the same. You, you know, we keep saying that we need a grace awakening. We don't. Because you know what? We can teach you all these things, and if your DNA is back here with a God who is disgusted with you, push comes to shove, you won't believe any of this. Some of us have preached a gospel for salvation that gave us forgiveness from sin and a ticket to heaven. And while those were beautiful, they were not the first thing that happened. The first thing that happened is this. God says, I'm crazy about you. I've loved you since before the world was born. I just needed a way for sin to be dealt with so I could play with you and enjoy you and, and love you. I'm crazy about you. I'm not ever disgusted at you. I will never punish you. And all that happened in that moment at the cross. We need a God reawakening where we actually put all of our weight on that being true or nothing will happen in our churches. We'll continue to see God over there with my sin between us and him standing far away saying, I had so much hope for you, but you've let me down so many times. I'm just scared. Don't even talk to me. Yes, you're a Christian. Yes, you get to heaven, but you will not have padding on your armrests and the chairs. I'm telling you that much right now. <laughs> you make me sick. You're going to be a second-class Christian for the rest of your life. I'm telling you that much right now. I don't. Get out. Get, a, get, a, get away from me. Yes, you're saved. And until I can say, that's heresy. Until I can say, that is heretical. That on my worst day, he's not disgusted with me. He's crazy about me. He loves me more than 10 billion unnamed planets and all the love on this world. And he is not ever trying to punish me or mock me or set me up. He's never saying, come on, come on. 
That's what's got to be taught before I will ever be able to put my weight on these truths. Amen, John. Amen. And when, when we forget that that's true, what John and Bill just said, when we forget that that's true, we need friends around really close to remind us Amen. what's true. Because sometimes we lose our way. We, we lose our North Star. We don't, we don't have a compass and we need our friends around. That's why we've been talking about trusting God and others with me. Because when I lose hold of who God says I am, I need to hear from others. You know what? You are not, your identity is not the aggregate of your behaviors. You don't just get to count up all your behaviors and determine if you're righteous or a little less righteous than you were yesterday. And so we need our friends around us. And whole churches need other churches to remind them, especially when they're going through hard times. And every church that's been around for more than a year is going to go through hard times, going to go through peaks and valleys. And when you're in a valley, a lot of us as churches, we, we live in shame because we're in a valley. And, and all these other people are in peaks. Those are the people that need to remind us who we are as a church, that we are saints, that we are royal priesthood, that we are a community that God treasures. And those churches need to come and stand with us when we're going through those hard times, just as they need to stand with us as individuals Amen. when we're going through hard times. Amen. Okay, guys. Okay. Thank you.